welcome to the struggle in victory. You are here, my friends, because you are striving to hear stories of people overcoming challenges in their life, pushing themselves to new heights beyond anything they thought possible, beyond anything their friends or family thought possible. Sit back, enjoy the stories, and see what you can make of your life. Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of Struggle and Victory. Today, my guest is San Diego local legend, Paul Beer. Paul has worn many hats. He's been an athlete for San Diego State. He's been an elite performer on the world track and field stage. He's also a college professor at San Diego City College, along with a program director under San Diego Track Club and the president of the USATF San Diego chapter. So this guy is very highly involved in the running community. He's also involved with people's lives. So, Paul, thanks for joining me today. Uh, It's a pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. So, first question, many people know you now as, hey, you're the guy that coaches San Diego Track Club, USATF. But let's look at Paul, the the younger years of Paul, when you were an athlete in high school and when you transitioned over to San Diego State. How did you get your starting to running and what led you to, to follow that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, well, you know, I went to um, uh, St. Augustine. It's an all-boys Catholic high school. And uh, the back then, uh, this was in 1979 when I entered Saints for the first time as a freshman, uh, ninth grader. Um, and even today, it still stands true. Saints is a very uh, sports-oriented, athletic-oriented school. And what I mean by that is that a large percentage of the student body, probably larger than most high schools, participate one way or another in sports. And um, being an all-boys school, uh, there is a little bit of uh, trying to gain respect among the other boys. Um, and the way that one did that was through sports. That's that's how people were recognized. I remember as a freshman in um, in high school, uh, there was a senior uh, that uh, was a 110 meter hurdler. And he was actually the best hurdler in the, in the county that year. And he happened to go to St. Augustine. And uh, every Friday in particular, or meet days, he used to come in with his Letterman jacket with all these medals on his jacket. And he was coined the name General Ramos. His last name was Ramos. And so you kind of looked at guys like that because we were upperclassmen and you, and you sensed around you that uh, the, the boys that had the greatest respect or, the, or, or kind of the step up on, you know, as far as people looking at and, and you know, because it was it, sometimes it was a school that it was rough. It was just boys, you know, so boys can be boys, you know, uh, but it was the athletes that uh, especially the good athletes that gain respect. So I, uh, I, want, I knew that I mean, sports was a kind of a way to go. Plus it was highly encouraged at the school. As I said, 80 to 90% of the student body, even to this day, participate in some form of athletics throughout the school year. So uh, some do three sports in a year, some do two, some only do one. So not for soccer. I thought, well, my father was a semi-professional soccer player uh, 
in Scotland. And I, uh, although I didn't play the game at all and in grade school or junior high, I thought, well, uh, I might, I might gather some of the skills that my dad did if I just learned them. Well, I got cut from this team. <laughs> uh, soccer was not something that I was good at at all. I was great to get to the ball. Once I got to the ball, I couldn't move the ball or in any shape or form. So uh, track was a sport that you could, uh, there was no cutting. Uh, they, they took you. Uh, it was a question of whether you made the traveling team is how good you were, but you could at least compete in the home meets when there were home meets and you could certainly go out every day and practice with the, with the, with the team. So that's what I did. I went out for track. And uh, I remember the very first day of my track practice as a 14-year-old ninth grader in 1980 now, because I went in the fall of 79. This is 1980 track season. Uh, General Ramos <laughs> and uh, the other leaders of the team had everyone gather in a large circle. And we did static stretching. Back then, there was no such thing as dynamic. We didn't know what that was. Static stretching. You know, you touch your toes and you stretch the calf muscles and and um, uh, at the end of the stretching, uh, they went right into doing jumping jacks. Well, I started doing jumping jacks and Mark, I was so uncoordinated that I couldn't even do one jumping jack properly. And I must've looked like a fool because it quickly caught on to the leaders in the middle of the circle that this scrawny, skinny freshman couldn't do a jumping jack. So they brought me out to the middle of the circle and they had me demonstrate a jumping jack, which I still could not do. And everyone laughed at me and, uh, you know, ridiculed me and the go, who got this guy on the team? You know, I couldn't even do a jumping jack. You know? And uh, what's amazing about that story is 15 years later in 1995, I was inducted into the St. Augustine Hall of Fame. It was the first year of the induction in, uh, of athletes into the Hall of Fame for the school. And I made the first year's induction, partially because of timing. <laughs> you know, I had graduated and my, my competitive career was over. But I was very honored to be part of that first year of induction into the Hall of Fame at St. Augustine because there's such great, great athletes that came before me and came after me. And uh, so... Um, and it was just, you know, I just started from there and uh, I was a 400 meter runner at first. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I remember picking up a book as a freshman. It was uh, an English class and uh, they wanted us to read a book and do, kind of do somewhat of a book report. And I picked a book about Roger Bannister. As we know, Roger Bannister is the man credited for running the first sub four minute mile ever. On May 6th of 1954, he ran 359. And what people don't realize about Bannister's sub-four-minute mile is that that mile was, uh, it wasn't so much about the, the, the sport or the, or the, or the mile, but it, the milestone, four minutes, four laps. The world can understand that. They can get their mind around that. And when Bannister did it, uh, it was such a profound effect because it taught or it reminded mankind that if man puts their mind and their bodies to doing something, they can achieve anything. 
remember 1954 is prior to when Armstrong walked on the moon in 1969, which was another barrier, right? But this was an athletic barrier. It was such a feat that at the end of the 20th century, the only sporting event to make the top 100 significant events in the 20th century. Now we're talking about the World Wars, we're talking about the Holocaust, we're talking about the uh, Lindbergh's flight, uh, transatlantic flight, we're talking about some very significant events, you know, the discovery of polio or, you know, uh, it just goes on and on. The only sporting event achievement that made the top 100 significant events in the 20th century was Bannister's self-permitted so I'm reading this book um, about Bannister and Bannister talked about the importance of setting goals. And part of that was, was to write down your goal and then look at it every day. So I right then was so inspired by Bannister and reading about Bannister and the fact he was a, a medical student this was something he did on the side, but he was very focused in doing, which was to break the four-minute mile. He was very talented. See, back then, their training wasn't the same as today. He only ran maybe 20, 30 miles a week. He was an incredibly talented runner. But he knew better, because of being a medical student, that trying to break this barrier of four minutes went against conventional thought. He would not die by doing it. People literally thought you would die trying to break the four-minute mile. They thought that's how impossible it was, and that's how you shouldn't go near it. So Bannister was an inspiration to me in many ways. So I right then decided, you know what, I want to try the mile, even though at the time I was a 400-meter runner. You know, I had some speed, but I was still a junior varsity 400-meter runner. You know, and at best I probably would have made a varsity 400-meter runner. But it would not have, I would not have been able to uh, maximize my potential unless I moved up in distance. So I wrote down a piece of paper. My goal at that time to break six minutes in the mile. That was my short-term goal. And then my long-term goal, interesting enough, in 1980, I wrote down 359. And then, Mark, what happened is I started this journey i call it a journey where i physically got mature i physically got better in the sport but at the same time every single day for every single week for every single month for eight years i looked at that same piece of paper which said 359 and the only thing that changed in eight years was i built the six minute barrier then I built the five-minute barrier. Then I set a goal for 4.30. Then I set a goal for 4.10. And then I set a goal uh, for uh, 3.59, which is a long-term. So the only thing that changed was my short-term goals after I achieved those goals. And then on June 10th of 1989, at UCLA Drake Stadium, I became the 168th American to ever break the four-minute mile running a time of 359.79. That journey started back at St. Augustine High School. And it evolved to where in high school, I basically, you know, uh, just kind of paid my dues, worked hard, uh, uh, trained hard, um, 
stayed focused in school, but always visualized that supplement at my own. And every single day I would look at that piece of paper and I'd visualize me running 359 a mile. Every single day, I would visualize the fact that I would, I would visualize the uh, stadium that I did it in, even though I didn't know what stadium it was in. I visualized the competitors, even though I didn't know who the competitors were gonna be. I visualized my dad being in the stands and I could picture, because I, I know what my dad looked like. My dad was a big fan, you know, and so I visualized him in the, in the stands. And every single day for eight years, Mark, never in my mind when I visualized it, did I ever run four minutes of 401. I always achieved my goal in the visualization process. And that helped attribute to my, my major goal, which was to break the four-minute mile, like Bannister did. Bannister ran 359, I ran 359. So that's kind of what happened. And uh, you got better, you just got better as a sport, you know, as I got better in the sport. Um, I did have some speed, so that did help. I think mainly my work ethic was just real high, more more so than a lot of my high school competitors. I just went out there and worked really, really hard. I didn't the one thing I remember is that I never was afraid of pain. Uh, I, I uh, embraced the discomfort and pain that comes with the sport of running when you're really getting close to your maximum, you know, effort. Uh, and I wasn't scared of that. For, and pretty much, I don't think Bannister was scared of that. Because if you're going to, uh, you know, run at any kind of high intensity, you are going to feel some discomfort and pain. And that was one thing that I took pride in that I could, I not only took it on, I embraced it. I, I, I recognized it uh, and worked through it. And that's, that's a mental as well as a physical realm that comes together at the same time. So by the time I graduated from high school, I'd run 410 in the mile. I was the seventh fastest miler in the country. Interesting enough, the, the, the distances that universities and the Olympics run is the 1500 meters. And I'd run a 1500 meters as a senior, invitational. And at the end of that year, I was the third fastest 1500 meter runner in the country. So um, I wanted to go to Notre Dame uh, and, or Villanova. Villanova was really the school I wanted to go to. Villanova was an Augustinian university. Uh, it just seemed to make sense in my mind that uh, Villanova would be a kind of a good transition from a high school that's an that's Augustinian to a university. Plus, back then, Villanova was one of the top schools in the country in track and field. Uh, that's a school that, uh, you know, Aim Coggan graduated from, Mark Belger, Mari LaCorey, uh, Kevin McCary here in San Diego, who's went on to run 213 in the marathon. Um, but I didn't get in. My grades weren't, my grades were okay. I was a 3.1 grade point average. I was a B student. Uh, at a college prep school, I mean, that's not bad, but I needed much higher grades to get into Villanova. So, um, and Notre Dame was another school I wanted to go to just because of the Catholic tradition of that school. But what ended up happening is I got recruited by San Diego State. And San Diego State University actually, ironically, around that time was higher ranked in track and field than both Villanova 
in Notre Dame. It was actually the track school to go to, you know. Um, and uh, so uh, I got recruited and I accepted a letter of intent to San Francisco State. And uh, I was very excited about that graduating from high school because uh, at the time, San Diego State was ranked ninth best track and field school in the nation. And we had uh, 39.64 by 100 meter relay. Well, for those in the audience that don't know what that is, I mean, there are countries that don't run that fast. And here's this university in Southern California running that. We had a mile relay of 305, you know. I mean, that would be, there would be countries running that in the Olympics, you know. Uh, we had a 146, 800 meter runner, you know. Um, uh, so we had a very good team and some of the fastest uh, runners in the nation went to San Diego State. Uh, so I went in as a freshman and uh, bought the freshman record for the 1500 meters running 346. I went through a couple years of struggle. Um, I got hurt the following year. I was primed in 85 to have a great year because I came off a really good freshman year and got injured at uh, University of Southern California when I ran into meat and pulled my calf muscle. And that sidelined me. And in 86, I never really came back as best I could. I, I don't think I was being uh, coached uh, right as a middle distance runner. I was being coached okay. Uh, my coaches are good. Coaches were good at San Diego State, but they didn't emphasize enough speed for me, and I needed that. I, I already had strength. What I needed was a lot of more turnover. So in 87, I purposely redshirted so I could switch coaches. And I moved uh, uh, to a coach by the name of Sheffield, who was a 400 meter hurdle coach. He, he didn't really have any middle distance runners. But I understood that the 400 meters and the 800 meters, 1500 meters, are the both same kind of animal when it comes to middle distance and that type of uh, middle distance training. You know, uh, you have to have incredible strength and speed to run a good 400 meter hurdles. You have to have incredible strength and speed to run a good 800, 1500 meters. So this guy got it, uh, Ron Sheffield, that is. And uh, the first thing he said that I embraced when I started working with him, he, had, he always had these quotes, you know. One quote he said was, what they call hell, we call home. You know, now it had no, had no spiritual connotation to that. What that meant was that if you work hard and put your body through hell, the races will feel like home, you know. And I improved quite a bit. I went from uh, 346 to about 344 low, uh, that red shirt year, which set me up for my senior year where I built the school record at San Diego State. I wanted to break the school record. It was uh, at the time 344.9, held by Bob Messina. I ended up coaching at UCLA for many years. Uh, and I, ran, uh, I finished at San Diego State at 342.42. And I uh, had the school record there. And I was very, very proud of that because that, that was one of those short-term goals that I had. Remember the long-term, short-term goal? Well, soon enough, my short-term goal turned to 1,500 meters, 343, which was big, big school record. I'm at 342. But that gave me a lot of confidence leading into the next year, 1989, because I realized in the metric mile, when you convert 342 to a mile, it comes out to 359, meaning if you can come through the 1500 meters in 342, 
you're going to have a good shot of breaking a four-minute mile if you finished it in that same space, same pace. So that gave me a lot of confidence. But I'll tell you what the biggest thing for my development as an athlete came. See, I'm one that ran better after college than ran in high school and in college. It's one of the things I'm most proud of. Uh, a lot of athletes will run their best in high school and then they get to college and they run and end up running slower or end up not finishing the sport. A lot of athletes will get through college and run their best years in college. But then when, when they graduate, they're trying to balance their livelihood and life with sport. But for me, I ran my best after high school, college. And that had a lot to do with the fact that I started training with, at the time, the American record holder in the mile, and who's arguably the greatest miler in history in America. And that was Steve Scott. There's a man who ran over 136 sub four minute miles, still a world record today. He's a three-time Olympian. His PR in the, in the mile was 347. And uh, I trained with him every single day after college. And, uh, you know, <laughs> You run with a guy that's run at that time 120 supplement of miles or whatever he had under his uh, bucket list there. Uh, well, not bucket list, but under his uh, resume. Uh, you know, you're sure going to get one out of, uh, out of yourself because you're running with a guy that's the king of running on a four-minute mile. So we ran every day. He only lived about seven miles away from where I lived. He lived in Sanitas at the time, and I lived in Santa Beach, which was real close. We trained every day, and uh, to this day, when I look back with running with Steve, though, I think the greatest fondness of it is is my friendship with Steve. Uh, to you know, I still call him uh, where he lives now in Texas and say hello and uh, catch up, and uh, we have some great stories together, training and and traveling and racing too. It was wonderful, and uh, he was inducted into the United States Track and Field Hall of Fame. He invited me to sit at this table and. He recognized me for, for helping him out and, and training with him all those years. And I got great pride in that because I felt like I contributed to his, his, his career as well in a small way. But he definitely, he definitely contributed to my career because then I went from running 342 to where my personal best was 339.05. Uh, I did that in 1991 in a race with Steve. Steve and I traveled together to a meet up in Santa Monica, California. And um, the race started and I got right behind him and and just just focused on his back the whole way. And he uh, he ran 337 that night and I ran 339 that night. And that qualified for me for the United States Olympic trials, uh, the 92 U.S. Olympic trials uh, that would be in New Orleans. And... Um, I ran in the 92 Olympic trials in New Orleans, made it to the semifinals of the Olympic trials, but got eliminated. And uh, I've run a couple more years, never ran as fast as 339 after that, um, but did get a couple more years uh, to about 95. I, suffered, I, started, uh, I started training too much. And I would say I got overtrained. Uh, I did overtraining too much. Um, uh, and Steve suffered from the same thing. I think we both kind of <laughs> fed off each other and kind of, we didn't take into account our ages. We're getting older. I was now over 30 and training like I was still 20. So I wasn't recovering. I wasn't taking the recovery days as seriously uh, as I should have, which was to go slow and call recovery days. So my recovery days and my hard days were all meshing into one. 
in one hard day. And I overtrained. And so um, I, I will say, I remember, uh, I will just end with this story of my career. In 1996, uh, uh, they started an invitational called the Steve Scott Invitational, named after Steve, up at UC Irvine. And uh, Steve told me this was coming about. And he said, Paul, I want you to come and run in the, in the Steve Scott 1500 meters with me. You know, you've been training with me now for seven years, eight years, and you should join me and run with me. I go, great, yeah, I wouldn't miss it. So I remember the starting line, and uh, it was a Steve Scott mile, uh, Invitational, Steve Scott 1500, first year, and the race goes off, and hold and behold, uh, Mark, I find myself with 100 meters to go, stride for stride, with the great Steve Scott running toward that finish line, you know? And Steve's the one that I, I, on, on, on the second lane, I'm in the first lane, we're running side by side and we lean at the tape and Steve out kicks me. And I said, and, uh, and so I say to people to this day, I go, that was such a, a great feat, right? Uh, and I am proud of the fact that I took Steve all the way to the finish line. But I retired right after that race. And I never competed again after that race. And people go, well, how could you retire? You took Steve Scott all the way to the finish line. Well, the problem with that race and that, and that day was, Steve had just turned 40. In fact, that, that, was his, that was his 40th birthday that day, okay? Uh, we were racing for seventh place. And we're running equivalent to a 410 mile. We ran 352 in the 1500, which is like a high school time. And, you know, the, the 96 Olympic trials is, is uh, looming. And I'm not anywhere close to qualifying for the trials. I said to Steve after the race, Steve, I'm done. He, and he didn't believe me. He goes, oh, I'll see you Monday morning. And I didn't show up Monday morning. I was done. So the only thing that would be perfect to that story is if I actually outlined Steve at that finish line. But you know what? I look back, I love it the way it ended. And that's the way my career ended. And that's the way in a, in a short fall is how my career went. Okay. And uh, I'm a woman at Myler. Awesome. I love the story of, you know, Steve Scott is, you know, world renowned. I, mean, I love that story. Like, you know, you and him are fighting for the finish line and then he just out gets you at the very last second. But yeah, you mentioned yeah. something earlier about your work ethic and not being afraid of pain and agony and training. Was that something that your parents taught you, something you kind of grew or somebody like a mentor said something you're like, oh, I want I want to use this. How oh, yeah, I'll tell you. No, no, that's a very great question, Mark. And where it stemmed from was this. Uh, I grew up in a home where my mother suffered from multiple sclerosis. And uh, I was just a little boy. I was about six when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And back then, and, uh, and I'll date myself back a little bit, but this is 1970. Uh, they didn't really know what multiple sclerosis was. They, uh, they didn't know how to slow down the disease. Today they do. They don't have a cure for MS still, but they do know how to slow it down. They have medications, on things like that. that can slow down the disease a bit. But back then they didn't. So my mother went downhill very quickly. She got diagnosed and she was in a wheelchair within six months. And that was it. And then she basically stabilized. I mean, she basically then lived out 
uh, well, she lived to 2007. So that's, you know, she lived 27 more years with this disease, or oh, 37 more years with this disease, excuse me. Um, uh, but every single day, Mark, I would see her enduring this disease, you know, um, and her ability not to walk, but her, her perseverance in living her life the best way she could for herself and obviously for her family. And she was a great model for me, as, as most moms are for all of us. Uh, mothers are wonderful. And, uh, but I witnessed that, you know, uh, my favorite prayer in life is from St. Francis, preach the gospel, but when necessary, use words. And what that means is live by your example. And she lived in a great example of love, but she also lived a great example of perseverance, overcoming obstacles. And there's no greater obstacle than your own health, you know? And she didn't have it. She didn't have good health. So that helped me when I became a competitor because I drew back and almost kind of lived through my mom and what she was going through and thinking, you know what? She's doing a lot more than I am. You know what I mean? With MS, I can then transfer that and glorify that through, through her presence in my own racing and my own training. And uh, I was able to endure a lot of pain because of that, because my mindset was different. Do you see what I'm saying? A lot of people, will go through pain and they'll go and they'll, they'll retract back and go, I'm afraid of it, or I can't take it. You know what I mean? And you really got to hurt in this sport to be really good at it. You really do. Um, or at least to maximize your potential. You know, everybody from Olympic champions to NCAA champions to high school CIF champions know what pain feels like, you know, or and when I mean pain, I don't mean pain in the sense of a muscle pain. I mean, just discomfort. You know, what they call hell, we call whole. You embrace it, you take it. And uh, so I would run workouts that were just brutal. I mean, you know, I'd run three by 1,000s, you know, under 230. You know, I'd run three 800s and under two flat, with 226. You know, um, I would do tempo runs and a five-minute pace. 10 mile tempo ones, 50 minutes. I mean, these are just a few of some of the workouts that I endured that got me into super great shape, but more than anything got me mentally strong, you know, so that when I went into a race, I was able to stay focused and stay stay at that high intensity and and, and run through it and run through it basically to victory or to to a milestone times, like a supplement a mile or or even sub 340 to 1500, you know. At the time when I ran 339.05, I was the fastest post high school graduate to ever run that fast in the history of San Diego. You know, no one had run any, in San Diego County up to 1991, had run faster than 339.05 that I did. You know, and I was part of that. And then there was guys like Mark Davis and, you know, uh, others that came about that, end up running fast in 339, you know, but, you know, that was, um, you know, and, and at the time I was the only four sub-fulmin miler that came out of my San Diego high school um, to ever break the four-minute a mile, you know. Well, now there's eight of us that came out of San Diego as booking four. Guys like Mac Fleet, you know, 
uh, Avila, Eric Avila. They're all supplemental miters themselves now, you know. But uh, that that get back to what my mom went through, and I'm going, well, you know what? The least I can do is work through this. And in some ways, I was doing it to uh, show that you know I'm proud of my mother. You know, my mother endured this pain. Here's my I'm doing it, and mom, you know, um, you know. I, I, my, the pain you feel, the discomfort you feel, the obstacles you feel is nothing compared to what I am, but this in my way is way, is live, I'm living through this, so I'm relating to what you're going to, which is obstacles, perseverance, which is all these things you need for the sport and to be successful in the sport. You're going to get obstacles. You're going to get setbacks. It's how you overcome those setbacks, how you bounce back, you know? And I had some I had some big disappointments in my uh, athletic career, Mark. You know, I I lost the CIF County Championship by three hundredths of a second. Talking about get, leaning at the tape. I lost to a great athlete by the name of Joe Manuel, competed at Benita Vista at the time. He was one of the top milers in the nation himself. At that time, we had two guys, two, two high school kids in San Diego who were considered one of some of the two best in the top 10 milers in the country. You know, he, he was a 410 miler himself. And he outleads me by three hundredths of a second. You know, I remember at the, uh, my senior year, one of my goals, which I did not achieve, was to qualify for the NCAA Division One championships. Back then, you just had to meet a standard time. Today, it's a little different. You have provisionals and things like that. You, you go to a meet and you get you finish in the, the top tier and then you get to go to NCAs. In my day, you had to run a certain time. Well, the qualifying time was 342.20. Mark, my senior year at San Diego State with my 342.44 was the 14th fastest 1500 meter time in the country for all colleges, for all collegiate athletes. They took 13 to the NC2As. I could not go. You know, not, you know, do I, am I bitter about that? No, because that, in fact, I'm kind of thankful in a way because that gave me the fuel and the, and the still willpower and the, and, the, um, and the desire to continue going because I was still thirsty, still thirsty to, to, to still achieve something in the sport, even though I didn't get to my own NCAA championships, you know? If I had gone to the NCAA championships, if they allowed me to get in at the, at the 14th fastest time, or if, even if I qualified and ran 342-20, all I would have had to done at that championships that day was finish the race. You know why? There was only eight Americans that qualified for the NCAA championships that year, and top eight were all American. I've been an all-American. No matter what, you know, wasn't to be, but it helped in me running faster and being better even after college because I quite didn't get what I needed. But I overcame those obstacles. I overcame that setback. I didn't quit. Did I think about quitting? Yeah, I did. Was I at the time a little bit bitter about it? Yeah. Thinking, how what's the NCAA doing? You know, they're cheating now. You know, they, they can fit 24 people in a championship by having heats and a final of 12 people. 
Instead, they ended up having heats to eliminate one guy, a 13th guy, so we could have 12 people who line up at the starting line. At the final, Falcon ended up winning. But I ended up facing all these guys after college because I started running even faster after college than I did running in college. Part of that is I still have that desire and hunger to keep going. Okay, yeah, that, I was not familiar with that story about, you know, their senior year of college and trying to make that 1500 collegiate final and just coming up short of it. But what I'm hearing is, you know, that made you even more hungrier to keep training, to keep pursuing. And like you said, you had so much success after college. And like you said, I think that is a big catalyst moment of, yeah, I didn't hit this goal of, you know, making all American, reaching the NCAA final, but then you got more rewards after college. But yeah, and Mark, you're measured not on what you do, but it's how you overcome the setbacks and obstacles you have. And I can say that about life. We all have obstacles. We all have setbacks in life. But how, are, how do you react to it? How do you respond to that when that happens? Do you just uh, crumble in a ball and quit? Or do you rise up and go, okay, it's a disappointment, but now I'm going to live on. And, and so much of life, as in our sport, it's about persevering, persevering through life. Greater things can happen even when you have setbacks in life. And certainly I'm a good example in my athletic career. Great things can happen after setbacks in my career. Okay, awesome. So then let's let's switch gears. So after after doing all the running, all the high mileage, all the crazy races with the fast times, you transitioned into coaching. Talk about your journey from being on the athlete side to now being on the coach side. Okay, well, actually coaching started for me actually when I was in college, believe it or not. Um, I'm in my 35th year. Yeah, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've, been doing it, I've been doing it for quite a while. Um, and I'll tell you a, a good story about this. Uh, I think uh, our audience can learn from. And it, it's, it, it's a time I'm not very proud of. I had, a, I had some pride and I had some ego, you know. And pride and ego are two things that uh, lead to our greatest sins, you know, in many ways. And for me, my pride and ego came in my sophomore year. And of course, we deal with pride and ego all our lives. But here's an example of my pride and ego. Uh, I was in my sophomore year at San Diego State. And I was running with uh, some of uh, athletes who were on the team that were, quite frankly, not running as fast as I was, not as successful as I was at that time. Because remember, I came off my freshman year running the fastest freshman time in the history of San Diego State. So, um, and I was getting a certain amount of money for scholarship, you know? And uh, the, the scholarship, by the way, that were given me was plenty. I was getting my tuition. I was getting my books and I was living at home because I lived in Solana Beach. And I lived at home a lot. The reason is because I was uh, helping my father take care of my mother. You know, um, my sister had moved out. Um, and so, you know, my mother would go to doctor's appointments. My dad was working. I would be around to help. So, but, but, but let's face it, it helped me too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I could, you know, uh, uh, reap the benefits of not worrying about you know, rent, <laughs> utilities, and things like that. So uh, I was getting plenty of money in scholarship. However, when I overheard one of my teammates, who was not as successful as I was, getting more than I was, I was like, livid. I was mad. 
you know? So I walked into there, I marched into that coach's office and I said, hey, I'm not getting a, my fair due and respect here. And I get this amount, this athlete got that amount. I'm better than that guy, you know, pride, ego, you know? And he was very calm about everything. And he said, well, you're right, you are being successful. You also got to keep in mind as a, as a head coach of a division one university giving out scholarships that I have a full team to think about here. And there's people that don't all live at home in San Diego and they have greater needs like rent and like utilities. And the guy you're talking about is still a good athlete who's still contributing to our team. So yeah, he is getting more, but he, he needs more. And aren't you already getting enough? I mean, you already got tuition and books. You're getting everything you need from this university, especially living at home. So I will tell you, Mark, I walked out of there ashamed of myself, thinking, you know, that was an immature, not thinking about other type of action, you know. But the coach must have thought something about that because one month later, uh, a coaching position opened up at the San Diego Track Club where they were looking for a coach and they actually weren't looking at me at all. They were looking at that coach, you know, who I complained to. And what he did is he declined the job, but recommended me. Fred, sophomore, San Diego State University, a college kid, 20 years old. You know I mean, what do I know about coaching? And it's true. I mean, come on. I knew what athletes endured in this sense of discomfort that we've talked about earlier in this podcast. I knew, I knew workouts, I knew kind of workouts, but you know, did I really know about periodization or tapering, which is one of the two of the biggest things that coaches need to know about? No, but the coach came to me and said, Hey, look, Paul, I have an opportunity for you to coach a club called the San Diego track club, which by that was the first time I ever heard the term San Diego Track Club. And this is a club that's been around since 1954. This is 1985. So it's been around for a while, 31 years. And, um, uh, but he says, do you want the job? I don't want it. I want to give it to you. And at the time, it paid about $100 a month. Okay. Well, over 12 months, that was the increase of scholarship. Not only that, the workouts were at San Diego State. I didn't have to go anywhere. There were Tuesday nights at 5.30 at San Diego State University. I ran with my teammates. And then right after my workout, walked onto the track or was on the track, coached the athletes, and my journey with the San Diego Track Club began. And here I am 35 years later doing it, still doing it, and loving it. And uh, in some ways, Mark, I'll be honest, I think – uh, you know, we all, uh, we get to a point in our lives uh, at some point that we start thinking about our legacy. You know, what are we going to be remembered for? And I think that saying yes that day in 1985 and now 35 years later coaching and uh, having the opportunity to work with thousands of athletes over the years and, and continue, I'm still doing it. I'm not, I'm not nearly done. I'm still as vibrant and as energized to continue doing this, even more so today than I even was back then. Um, I think that might be my legacy. 
is is uh, is where it's always to ask. They will, it's your legacy. It could be coaching the San Diego Track Club because it has been a beautiful journey, um, and uh, I've been, I, and I've had the opportunity to be amongst this community and promote friendship with one another. Hopefully, love with one another. You know. Uh, and hopefully I've made a, a small difference in people's lives as a result of being in the leadership role of the San Diego Track Club and coaching them. But that's how it started. Started with uh, pride and ego. And it's now ended up uh, being more altruistic. And uh, I don't get paid much more than uh, I got paid back in 1985. It's not about the money. I don't do it for the money. I do it because I love the sport. I will, I will share one thing, a profound thing that happened. Um, you know, uh, I talk about how I ran with Steve Scott. That was a big part of my growth as an athlete, especially after college. But I will say also that equally contributed to my success as far as my mentor was my coach. When I registered that uh, year in 1987 and started my journey with Ron Sheffield, uh, you know, I improved a lot under his workouts, you know, especially in the spring. I'd run with Steve, but you got to remember when it came around to the springtime, Steve was so talented. He never went onto the track until May or June. And, and partially because the seasons would go much longer. He'd be running in Europe in August and September. But for me, I needed to get on the track a lot earlier. And so I would actually run with Steve on the recovery days, but go to the track in the spring on Tuesdays and Thursdays and be with my coach I had in college. Ron Sheffield. And while you're in college, you're not thinking about reimbursing your coach or paying your coach or anything like that, because quite frankly, you're part of the college system. He's a college coach. You know, it's his job to work with the college athletes. But after college, he continued to work with me. In fact, another uh, eight years more. And, um, and I went out there every spring Never missed a workout Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, from 1988 to 1996. And every single year, more than once in the year, but I would say to him, hey, coach, you're out here. You're coaching me. You're giving me these great workouts. You're timing me. You're telling me what to, you know, what I need to know and you're teaching me. Hey, how can I, how can I pay you? Uh, you know, bringing up my wallet and trying to pay him. And they go, no, 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 no. Don't want anything. Don't want anything. And then it got to the point, okay, I reckon I didn't want money, but hey, let's take coach out to dinner. You know, take him out to the nicest restaurant, give him a nice dinner. Nope, nope, nope. Not that he didn't like dinner. He just didn't want to be put in a position where I was actually thanking him. And he, part of it was he saw our journey not ending. He saw, you know, that, hey, there's no need to pay me. I'm Happy to do it. Your pleasure to work with. Uh, he would say to me, those are the things he would say. Well, after the Steve Scott, you know, race where I got out leaned by the American record holder at the finish line and I decided to retire. That following Tuesday, that was a Saturday, that following Tuesday, I went out and, I went, and for the first time, I went out to see Coach in my blue jeans and T-shirt. And, you know, a Coach knows Athletes even know when the end is coming because you're not running well. You know, no one's going to stop something when you're running well. And I wasn't running well all year. That was just the nature of the beast at the time. It was overtrained. It was then. So I, I came out 
shook his hand, said, Coach, I can't thank you enough for making a wonderful difference in my life and for, for just being the huge impact you were and how much more I improved in this sport. And I went, Mark, I went from 346 to 339 to 1500. I went from 405 to 359 the mile. I mean, uh, tremendous. That's a lot and when, you're, when you're down at those fast times. And uh, he says, oh, you've been a pleasure. And I says, okay, coach, it's over. I'm retired. Now can I take you out for it? Money was not out of the question. Now can I just take you out for a nice dinner? And he goes, Paul, now I can tell you I want you to do something for me. And I go, oh, coach, great. Yeah, what can I do? Tell me what else can I do for you? Let's do it, you know? He said, Paul, do the same for others as I do for you. Don't charge anybody. What you got out of the sport, give back to the sport and give back to the sport in a altruistic way, in a way of unconditional. Don't set conditions on athletes. Don't charge athletes. Just work with them for the joy of working with them and the joy of the sport. And to this day, Mark, I don't charge anybody for anything. I sit down with people all kinds of, over the years I've sat down with hundreds of people to discuss training schedules never taken a stand, I never will. I fulfilled coach's promise. And, uh, and, and I never had a desire to take any money because he's right. It's not about the money. It's about working with the individual and helping uh, that individual improve and become better runners, but more importantly, become better people. And hopefully my uh, little difference in their lives help with that. Mm. Wow. So obviously, you know, coaching with Senior Track Club, you're still coaching with them. Obviously, right now everything's going on with some virtual stuff and kind of like some small groups is in the works. You're also connected with USATF San Diego chapter. Talk about what that does in terms of promoting and growing the sport, not only in San Diego, but just Southern California as a whole. Oh, well, United States Track and Field is our governing, for the audience that doesn't know, is our governing body of the sport. It oversees track and field, Overseas road running, overseas cross country, overseas youth track, base walking, the likes. Um, it's a tremendous honor and privilege, um, also responsibility to be president of the association. Uh, to be honest, I never, I never signed up to be president. I never had a desire to be president of the association. Um, it was just a result that I became vice president um, and then the president at the time resigned uh, shortly after that. And it just became natural that the vice president becomes president until the next election. And then I uh, decided just to uh, rerun, you know, continue running as president. Uh, a big part of the reason uh, that I enjoy being president is that my, you remember the board, the president doesn't oversee track and field. It's the board of directors of the association that oversees the support. And so I have a great board of directors from my executive committee, vice president, secretary, and treasurer to all the other different positions, from communications director to sanctions director to the youth chair uh, and the likes, webmaster. Um, and we all work as a team. And, uh, you know, our, our mission is to promote the sport of track and field. 
and also foster opportunities for the sport of track and field. When I say track and field, track and field, cross country, road running, everything that goes with it. Um, uh, and of course, United States track and field uh, is the governing body of the sport. It's got 57 associations, 57 divisions, as you say. San Diego is its own chapter, as you pointed out, Mark. And we're a very vibrant association. Um, uh, our youth um, just portions got about 700 kids uh, that are part of that. Uh, in fact, that's half of our membership is kids. Uh, so we got one of the most vibrant and most successful youth track and field programs in the entire nation. It's no accident that we've uh, had uh, the likes of Desiree Linden, Monique Henderson, Gail Devers, three some of the greatest track and field performers ever come out of the United States track and field that came from San Diego. They were mentored well through their when they were kids to when they became adults, they became great champions. So, um, you know, we, 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 this is what we do. We offer these opportunities, we foster opportunities. Uh, you track is half of it. Then in the adult side, uh, you know, we are celebrating next year, the 21st year of the Dirt Dog Cross Country Series. Um, actually, it'd be this year. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't look like we're going to be able to have a season this year because of COVID. That's sad. But, but uh, not, nevertheless, we're in our 21st year of the Dirt Dog Cross Country Series, an opportunity for adults post-college, for the most part, to participate in cross country running opportunities. Uh, I started uh, back in 2010, the Summer Nights Track and Field Series, series of all comer meets. Um, again, we got hit by COVID this year. We're hoping to be back in 2021, those meets. Even if it's in a modified version, it'll be later in the year. I, I'll wait to see what happens. But these are all comer meets. So we're generating attendances of 250 to 350 people, which is big for an all comer to me. Um, uh, so we have that. Uh, we've hosted a couple Olympic trials for race walking. We've hosted a couple, just last year, we hosted the National Cross Country Championships, USA Cross Country Championships in San Diego. Uh, that was all, all part uh, of the San Diego USATF Association. Uh, so we are, we are, I'm proud to say, one of the most active and um, modeled associations in America. And um, it's a difficult time right now during COVID. Uh, everything's kind of stopped because without permits, we can't have cross country meets uh, or track meets for that matter. Uh, so our youth are kind of in a standstill, our adults are in a standstill. I did start up a virtual series called the Armageddon series. It's very similar to all these other virtual series and races around town, but we have our own version and go to San Diego.u. Are you still there? Sure, races if you want. No status quo until we can, things start opening up. Um, one thing I am, I will tell you, I will share with you um, that is important uh, for me and my mission as president right now, Mark, is that uh, San Diego is losing out on community tracks. Now, someone might say, well, Paul, come on, we have tracks all over the place. We have high schools, we have colleges, but they're not community tracks. They're, these tracks are owned by the districts 
of the universities that the tracks sit on. And uh, rightly so, these high schools and universities, their first and foremost priority is to their constituents, which is either high schools or high school kids, uh, universities or college kids. And so they have events just like everybody else does. And um, what's happened is that more events are now added on to the calendar. Not right now during COVID, but prior to COVID and after COVID, this will be happening the same way. And what happens is that there's not enough time in the day to welcome any community groups to use their tracks. Well, Mark, I got I got 700 kids out there that are missing uh, access to tracks to practice on, to have meets on. Uh, we have community clubs like distance clubs that uh, would love to use a track during the daylight savings change when it's dark early to be able to go to a track and start doing workouts as a club. But tracks is you know running in the dark is not safe, you know. And so there's a real challenge to get community tracks or get access to tracks for the community use. That's what I mean by community tracks. Have tracks that where the community can have access and use it. So we're thinking of ways to try to identify not only schools that might not have as busy schedules to accommodate the community, but also maybe work with city councils, future city councils to hopefully maybe generate, uh, we would help of course, uh, generate and build facilities a couple of facilities in San Diego would only be for community use only. So we would go to these tracks, and have shared use, and then the, the, the sport of track and field can open up a lot more. It's definitely a big problem right now, and it's something I foresee in the future that's going to, going to get worse unless we do something now. And um, I will tell you, it's, uh, it, it's a tough battle. Uh, our city council men and women are not uh, they don't think first and foremost of track and field, you know, they're, they're thinking, uh, but tourism is a big deal. And uh, we were able to, to uh, slant an argument that, hey, you know, this could bring in a lot of tourism. We could host in the future junior Olympic national championships or regional junior Olympic championships. We can host uh, CIF championships with a bigger you know, bigger um, audience. We could host collegiate invitationals or perhaps NCAA regional championships. Maybe someday if the track venue we could have built is big enough, we could host a national track and field championships or even an Olympic trials. I mean, the country would love to come to San Diego. The problem is we don't have the facilities. Just like our chargers who left didn't have an NFL stadium, track and field doesn't have venues. Or, or a multiple venues that we can work with. So that's my biggest mission and my biggest purpose as president of the San Diego USATF Association right now, is to identify and get those opportunities going. For someone who's just hearing this and wants to get involved, what's, what's one thing they can do to help you in your mission to creating these facilities, not only into the San Diego area, but I'm guessing, you know, Granted, your focus is San Diego, but also, you know, around the country, if, you know, somebody's listening in another state or another place, what would you suggest for them getting involved, whether it's in the San Diego chapter or other USATF chapters? Uh, great question. I think the biggest thing is that they could identify uh, uh, schools and maybe uh, visit or contact a local school where the administrator is there and ask them, hey, you know, we have 
community track and field in San Diego and community groups, uh, would they be open to open up the facilities uh, certain nights of the week for community use only? Uh, and uh, in San Diego, get ready for a little obstacle because an administrator might say, well, we got lacrosse, <laughs> soccer, football, all using the track at the same time. But then again, we might have a track uh, or a high school that is that has a facility where they don't have lacrosse as a sport in their high school, or they don't have uh, field hockey as a sport in their high school. Maybe they just have football, soccer, and track. Well, you know, in a facility of football and track stadium, that, uh, that or venue, that works. You know, football's in the fall, so we don't have to, although they have spring football, so there is a little conflict. Soccer is a seasonal thing from November to March, maybe. Track is like from March to the end of May, you know. So, uh, but that could be workable. But what's happened is a lot, of, especially in San Diego, a lot of these high schools, especially San Diego Unified School District, I can't speak for the other districts, but I think the other districts are following. They're now going to a late start mark. See, high schools used to start at 7.30 in the morning. Now they're opening up starting school at 8.30, 9 o'clock, thanks to a new state mandate, thinking that testing is going to be better by starting kids later in the day. What happens to those interscholastic sports? They get moved later to the day, right? So the kids will get out at 3.15, 3.30, and then that's when the sport teams start meeting. So we're running out of daylight or we're running out of nighttime venue space because these programs are used in that space. But perhaps there's a high schools out there that don't have as many sports so that even though those sports teams might go out at 3.30, it still might be done at five. So we need those facilities that are identified that are done at five with their own activities where we for community use to use it. Because the districts are not shutting out the community in the sense of not being open to permits. But what they do is they say, we're open to having you at our facility, but we have to check with the high school first on their activities. Barring there's no activity that they're doing, you can use the facility. Does that make sense? This is a challenge, and especially a challenge going into 2021 post-COVID. Okay. Yes, I want to double check because uh, when you're talking about the virtual Armageddon series, I think we might have had some tech issues where all of a sudden your audio cut out. Can you kind of okay. restate what the Armageddon series was? Just yeah, to yeah. Sure we have it covered. Yeah, I must have gotten three or four emails or and or phone calls a day for a while there from the distance community owners, uh, clubs, uh, because we have we have a we have a vibrant distance community here, running community, and they were uh, basically inquiring about Dirt Dog series, inquiring about road races or existing road races uh, that were not happening and were getting canceled. And uh, when are we going to be able to see events again? And uh, as we went on and the governor has put San Diego down in a low tier, <laughs> I mean, let's face it. I'm going to tell our audience right now, we need to get to the fourth tier before sporting events and musical events will be allowed back in San Diego County. We're now at tier two and they're threatened to go to tier one. There's so many cases of so many deaths in the county from COVID. 
So we're, we're, we're kind of a long way out. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you when we're going to get back, but we're going to have to live with this new normal. It is the way it is. And then hope for the best that things will start opening up better in 2021. So I was getting a lot of these things and I'm going, oh, from the United States track and field San Diego, we just can't sit by and go, well, we'll wait till it opens up. You know, we're already being proactive in these other issues I just pointed out. Track space and community use, use a track. Uh, we, uh, you know, other things we did for the association, you know, internal stuff that we're working on. We got to at least send out a message that we are trying to promote outdoor fitness, outdoor activities, and things like that, but still stay within the CDC and COVID rules, you know, and mandate. So virtual is the way to do it, where someone just goes out on their own and runs their own race virtually. And then use Strava or use a Nike run or use Garmin to record their, their time. And so that's what I did. I, I uh, uh, was a New England uh, association is doing a virtual series. Um, and so I kind of modeled a, a lot of the distances that they do and then apply it to what works in San Diego. And that's kind of how it came about. I uh, just created a schedule, created the weekend. They have a whole weekend to do this particular event, not one day or one particular hour that you have to do it. You have flexibility. And on that particular weekend, that's the distance they run. And then they submit their times that they get through their Garmin or, or Nike run or through Strava to our score of the Dirt Dog series, funny enough. The guy who handles all our scores has agreed to help us in the virtual series, Tom Burge. And basically Tom just accumulates all the names and times, lists them all from fastest down to the slowest, and then we post it. That's all we do. That's all it is. It's very simple. But sometimes simple is good. Doesn't have to be too complicated, you know. And uh, I'll tell you, we did a 5K. Uh, <laughs> we had, had Stephen Martinez, my local local runner, went 1408 virtually. You know, I, I mean that that's phenomenal. You know, and we checked his Strava. It's 1408. He ran 3.12, uh, and then we had Mariah Earl run 1628 as a 41-year-old in a 5K. Well, that was all part of the virtual series. And uh, and everyone that participates is a winner in the sense that they went out, they ran a 5K, they did the best they could, and they have their times now posted that they can be proud and looking at. So, yeah. So, that, yeah. so we have this Armageddon virtual series. We have a couple more events. The last event ends with a mile. So they'll go out and run one mile. It's different distances. We did a relay, um, two-man relay, two-woman relay. Uh, was one of them was we have two 5Ks. We're coming up to uh, another distance with Funky. We're running 200 yards to pick up a 5K. So we're doing different types of things, different kinds of fun. No different than the other virtual opportunities out there. I got to tell you, it's this uh, USATS standing version that we got out there. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I guess it, it, it's definitely as people are transitioning to some virtual stuff. And kind of you know looking for that care in front of like okay what can i train for what's something i can do that's going to get me out the door every day to train like you were talking in your college training like you know that 359 goal you're always looking at every day for eight eight plus years and then you achieved it i think this virtual option that you mentioned 
same thing. It's that carrot. It's that goal that people are, hey, I want to see what I can work towards with that. That's exactly right. SanDiego.USATF.org. Visit the road running link. Uh, the, the, there's different areas of USATF. Click on road running and you'll see more information about the Armageddon series as well as the rules that go with it. Because it's self-reporting. You got to report what you run and you got to uh, provide uh, a Strava report upon the quest. Um, but no one seems to be questioning what people are running. Everyone, well, I can run 16.28. Stephen Martinez can run 14.08. So no one's questioned that they did it. But if there was a question, we have the Strava, the garment to back up those times by looking at uh, those things. Okay. So before I ask my final question, obviously we were sure. talking about the USATF, the Armageddon series. Where where can our listeners find you? Whether it's you know connection with Senior Track Club, USATF, and then sure. if they're interested in you know any of your courses that you offer at uh, San Diego City College. So where can thank you, Mark. You? Yeah, yeah. We never did get a chance to talk about my day job. <laughs> I know. I know. So you get so wrapped up in the the running stuff. I'm like, that's okay. Like, that's okay. Stay there. Yeah, well, I'm a professor at San Diego City College. I've been there 31 years. Uh, that's another story, but I, I uh, was all set to be an elementary school teacher, and uh, <laughs> I got hired as a cross-country coach at San Diego City, and that evolved into a full-time job, tenure-track job as a professor and teaching kinesiology. So these days I'm teaching online. Uh, so I'm at San Diego City College. I, I teach mostly lecture classes. That's what, kind of where I'm at now in my career. Um, I do teach one activity class, aerobic core conditioning. Um, uh, and, uh, and we have a fitness center at San Diego City College. So if you if you live in the area of San Diego City College and you want to, once after COVID lifts, you want to come to the fitness center and use our great equipment there, uh, take one of my classes, that's great. But I, I mostly teach introduction to kinesiology. Kinesiology, remember, Mark, is a study of movement. You know, it's a, it can be applied to a lot of things. In fact, we have a lot of medical students that end up majoring in kinesiology as an undergrad and go on to medical school because of it. It's a great, great field, as well as our standard PE teachers. Yeah, but it, it's all facets of movement. It's a, it's a wonderful field. This course is an introduction to that. What is kinesiology about? What careers can you find in the field of kinesiology? Which is many. Uh, so I teach that, and I also teach another class lecture Health and Lifestyle 101, which is a class that basically encompasses everything about life and the six dimensions of wellness. So that's kind of what I do at City College. Outside, I, as we discuss, of course, I coach the San Diego Track Club. Uh, we are going to start uh, opening up our Tuesday night workouts again. Uh, it will be obviously COVID safe. We'll be having everyone wear masks, staying safe distance. We're going to be uh, limiting the numbers of people that have to sign up ahead of time to do the workouts or be on Tuesday nights. Uh, and so more information about that can be found at sandiegotrackclub.org, www.sandiegotrackclub.org for Tuesday night workouts. So start up maybe in the next month or so. And it looks like it'll be done at the Anza Cove in Mission Bay. Other things you can find me at though, uh, I welcome you. I am now starting to do fitness tips for the Port Authority. And I'm down at Seaport Village every other Thursday. And you can find me on Instagram by saying visit Seaport or typing in visit Seaport. Or you can find me on Facebook, visit Seaport. Uh, we're very happy with the views of that. There's over 5,000 views of my fitness tips. And uh, 
I provide a fitness tip every two weeks um, at Seaport Village. Visit Seaport for that. So I do that. And uh, lastly, uh, every Thursday night, all are welcome. It's not just a San Diego track club. In fact, we're trying to find ways to find uh, other groups and others to join in. But we host a San Diego track club Zoom, just like what you have here with the podcast, uh, Mark. But we do a Zoom session with uh, guests every week. Uh, we've had you, Mark, on. You were a great guest on my Zoom. Every Thursday night at 7 o'clock, you can find the link to click onto that through the Facebook, San Diego Track Club Facebook page. All are welcome. Click the link, 7 o'clock Pacific time on Thursdays. And we have a new guest every week. We've had Meb Kofleski on there. We've had Desi Linden on there. And mark your calendars. Uh, next Thursday, a week from Thursday, November 5th, two days after the election, we're having Coach Bob Larson on the San Diego Track Club Zoom. Coach Bob Larson was Meb Kofleski's coach. And uh, he's also the subject of a book called City Slickers and a movie. So Coach Bob Larson will be on in two weeks. But check us out on Thursdays, any Thursdays, 7 o'clock, San Diego Track Club Zoom. You can find us on the San Diego Track Club Facebook page. Okay. For my final question, what do you do each day to make each day matter to you? Well, uh, I think it comes down to balance. Uh, I try to live in the four area, main areas of life every day. And those areas is the physical realm. So I try to exercise at least five or six days a week. Um, definitely stay active seven days a week. Um, so that's the physical area. Um, part of being physical is also just taking care of yourself. So that includes trying to eat as best you can and try to stay stress-free. So that's the physical realm. I live in that every day. I'm always present and thinking about that every day. Then there's the mental area, the area, the intellectual area. And that could be I read a good book or you know, continue reading good books or read chapters. Uh, I stay always informed of my field of kinesiology. It's, that field of kinesiology is ever-changing. It's changing a lot all the time. So you always have to stay on it. So I read journals. But most of all, the intellectual is be mindful of the lessons learned. That's a cognitive thought. Learning from something and doing better next time or revising or modifying or continuing doing what you're doing well. Other areas, your emotional area, being around family. Remember, Mark, the most important ministry in your lifetime is your family. So in my, in my life, it's my wife, Callie. Uh, we don't have kids, but we have 13 nieces and nephews. So it's living and being present with my wife and being present with my family. And uh, let my wife know I love her every day and showing that love and being a good listener. Being a good listener. It's a big part of being a, a, a partner to somebody. So the emotional area you got to live in every day of your life. And finally, Mark, I live in the spiritual realm of my life every day. For me, spirituality is for everybody is different. For me, it's prayer. Uh, I have been a practicing Catholic all my life, so I pray every day. I always start my prayer with uh, thankfulness, thankful to God for my health, thankful to God for my faith, thankful to God for 
the ability to be in the life that I have, be loved and to convey love to others. Important to live in the spiritual life every day. In fact, those of those four dimensions, those four areas, the spiritual life is probably um, the most important part of life because it's identifying something that's bigger than you. If God's not in your life, then appreciate a sunset, appreciate a moon, uh, the moon comes out, but appreciate the bigger aspect of life, the things that we can't explain, uh, and to live with that and, to, and to find joy with that. And that's individual, that's for everybody. So for me to answer your question, it's living every single day in the four areas of one's life. And in my life, it's the physical, the intellectual, the spiritual, which is very important to me, and the emotional, which is also, all four are very important. Awesome, I love how you talk about the balance with all four categories and how you showed examples of it. So guys, if, you, if you're in the San Diego area and you're part of the running community, somehow, somewhat, you've probably seen Coach Paul, whether he's at the track, he's on a road, he's, he's leading a race, he's directing a race, talking with athletes. If you haven't yet, definitely check him out with his uh, fitness tips with the Port Authority. Check him out with the San Diego Track Club if you're looking for groups and coaching. This guy knows the sport inside, outside, backwards, forwards. If, if you have a question, he probably has lived it and has an answer for you. If not, I'm sure he'll find a way to help get you that answer. But this is one guy who's been a staple in the San Diego running community. I'm proud to call him my friend and hopefully you can too in the near future. But wrapping things up, like I say with everything else, take this message, run with it and make today matter. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's episode of Struggle and Victory. If you or someone you know is interested in being a guest on this show, send me an email at mark at markthecoach.net and I look forward to hearing all sorts of stories and getting you on the schedule. 